this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. been too long since I welcomed Stephen Edwards to Church and Culture. The last time he was on, we talked about his amazing documentary, Requiem for My Mother, a uh, requiem that was premiered in the Vatican. And if you haven't seen that documentary, make a special effort to see it. It's inspiring and beautiful. But let me remind you a little bit about Stephen Edwards. He's a Michigan native, although now he lives in Los Angeles with his two children. He began at an early age because his mother, uh, Rosalie Edwards, was quite the musician and quite the music instructor. And that's where he got his basic training. And that, of course, is why he wrote The Requiem for her. He uh, has since then become one of Hollywood's most prolific Film composers. Now, Stephen, the last time I counted, you had 60 soundtracks. How many do you have now? Uh, I've lost count. <laughs> okay, well, we'll double that. You know, I contribute to a lot of movies, too, you know, one or two pieces. And so if you look at my IMDb page, it's just chock full of things. It is. Um, I looked at yeah, it. Yeah, I have to IMDb myself now to try to remember Well, some of the, uh, the ones that are best known include Dallas Buyers Club, Amelia the Prestige, one I, I particularly like that film. Yeah. and The Mechanic. His compositions are also heard on television, on series such as Mad Men, ER, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and over 50 other shows. He's had orchestral and choral compositions premiered at Music Sacra Festival in Vatican City and Carnegie Hall. He is a citizen of both the United States and Italy, and he speaks fluent French. How's your Italian, Stephen? Awful. <laughs> well, you have put your oh, your incredible drive and talent together to put together a documentary that takes place in Italy and Rome in particular, entitled Syndrome K. And this is a story that will be of interest to all Catholics. It is a story about incredible courage and really death-defying courage. So, Stephen Edwards, why don't you tell everyone the basics of your story? So, Syndrome K is a feature-length documentary film about three doctors uh, in Rome, Roman doctors, during the Nazi occupation of Rome from 1943 to 1944 that made up a fake disease called Syndrome K that saved the lives of Jews that were being deported to Auschwitz. So, they basically created a new disease, charts, symptoms from scratch, and housed these Jews inside of Fatih Bene Fratelli Hospital, which is a famous hospital on the Tiber River in Rome, uh, and saved a lot of people up until the, in June of 44 when the Allies freed Rome and took Rome back. And so you have the, the, the setting for this is a hospital that is next to the Jewish ghetto in Rome across the Tiber River. And I'm going to try to pronounce the name of the hospital, Fate Bene Fratelli. Wow, that's excellent. That's better than I did the first 50 times. I call it Fate Bene Fratelli. <laughs> okay. Which and it was a hospital that... Uh, remained open during the war, during the uh, first years of the war. And I'm right, though, in saying that before the Nazi occupation, the Jews under Mussolini were, were left pretty much alone. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they were, 
you know, the race laws came in, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, in the late 30s. So life was no was no picnic for the Jews in Italy. But they, you know, in terms of the, uh, you know, deportation and mass slaughter that was going on in Eastern Europe, that really hadn't hit Italy and, frankly, never really did like it did in Poland and places where it's just, you know, they were just basically, you know, exterminated. So, you know, the race laws made it difficult, but, uh, you know, they, it was, it was a much different scenario in other parts of Europe. Yeah, when the Nazis occupied Italy, they began deporting I- Italian Jews to the uh, concentration camps. Uh, but you had, so, in the shadow of this Nazi threat, you had not a Jewish, Jews began to come to the hospital right across the Tiber River and ask for, to hide there, is that correct? Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. And, you know, I stood inside of Fatih Ben Fratelli Hospital when I shot the exterior scenes for the doc, and I could I stood inside the ward, and I could look across the Tiber, and I could see the Great Synagogue of Rome. So it's literally 200 meters. You know, you could probably hit a golf ball, <laughs> you know, a short iron across the Tiber and hit the hit you know hit the the Great Synagogue. It's not that far. And of so course, this the, is the synagogue that Saint John Paul II visited for the correct. very first time a pope had visited it. Correct. And it's the synagogue's not that old. I mean, for Rome. You know, it's, I think it was built 120 years ago, so it's a, in, in building age in Rome, it's a baby. It's a baby. Um, but, um, you know, there's buildings that are, you know, 2,000 years old that are literally a short walk from the, from the synagogue inside the Jewish ghetto. Now, I, I'm right in saying that uh, in the hospital they already had a Jewish doctor who they basically were hiding his, his ethnicity. Is that correct? That is correct. And so you had three doctors who you talk about their heroic deeds. So as the pressure built, uh, I'm going to ask you sort of to tee up the first clip that we're going to play the audio. This, of course, is a documentary with full visual and audio. Uh, You have these three doctors who began to struggle with some sort of solution to how they could help save these Jews. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the first clip, I think it's a, uh, and interestingly, uh, the voice you hear is the late, great Ray Liotta. And yes. we lost Ray last year. And Ray was our narrator. And um, he tells the story of sort of, uh, it kind of gives you a little background and what was going on in Rome in that period and how the sort of the, very beginnings of the story uh, transpired. Uh, he Let's does a nice job of setting it up. Let's listen. September 1943, Rome is now under Nazi occupation. First order of business, rid the Italian capital of Jews. Thousands scramble for a place to hide, which lead many into the doors of a Catholic hospital under the care of three doctors who risked their lives to protect them. The doctors took an oath to preserve life. They saw this as their duty, no matter the cost, knowing what their fate might be. Armed with stethoscopes, charts, and the grace of God, these doctors conspired to fool the Nazis with a deadly, contagious, fake disease. They called it... Syndrome K. 
syndrome K was invented for this. My father said I had to save those lives. It was my duty. I, I did my duty as a doctor. Bravery always wins. An audio excerpt from Stephen Edwards' documentary, Syndrome K. And bear in mind that Stephen Edwards not only produced this, but he wrote the score. And, of course, as I've already already said, he's very well known for his film scoring throughout both film, business, and television. But it's very interesting and really powerful, Stephen, that you were able to interview one of the, these three doctors. Yeah, uh, amazing. One of the coolest experiences I've ever had. Um, you know, I found out about this story totally by accident. Um, a couple of music colleagues of mine posted a meme about it on Facebook. And because I have such an interest in Roman, you know, you were talking about my first documentary, Requiem for My Mother. That film was also shot in Vatican City. It was shot in the States, but it was also shot in Vatican City. And so I saw this meme, and I took a keen interest, and I immediately said to myself, wow, I want to see this film. I mean, this looks so interesting. I want to go rent it or stream it or do whatever. So I did what everybody does. I went to you know Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, um, Google Movies, and just searched the title, and there was nothing. And I couldn't believe it. I said, how is that possible right. that 75 years later, nobody's made this film? And what's this guy from Los Angeles doing, you know, poking his nose in the business of something that happened in World War II? And, uh, you know, this is a, you know, this is one of these aha moments you have in your life. And started to research the th- three doctors that were involved, Ozuccini, Borromeo, and Sacerdoti. And there was no death notice for Ozuccini. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. And so I found a Jewish journalist in Rome, and she told me that indeed he was still alive, 98 years old, living in a compound in Rome, um, still very loose and with it. So I immediately booked uh, flights to go over and sit down and interview with him. Uh, fascinating guy, you know, beaten by the Gestapo, um, you know, a member of parliament after the war, uh, just a real, true blue, uh, in the flesh hero. Yes, and really part of the uh, sort of lower stratum of your documentary is the relationship between Catholics and Jews. You have some Catholics who were heroic and some who are not and some who have done more. Uh, We'll get into that in a minute, but in relation to the other two doctors, who did you interview that knew them well? Um. So in relation to Dr. Borromeo, Dr. Borromeo was kind of the patriarch of the hospital. He was he was much older than Sacerdoti and Ozuccini. Uh And Borromeo's son, who was in his 80s at that point, we sat down and interviewed him as well. So in the same couple of days that we saw Ozuccini, we also saw Borromeo. And we also met up with two Roman Jews that were survivors who are now in their 80s, who were, who were rescued as kids in the hospital. Yeah, that was some of the most powerful footage, I think, that you shot. Uh, What's in the second clip? So the second clip is, um, (laughs) that is the kind of the background of, uh, it kind of talks about Pius XII and, you know, the position he was in as the, you know, the vicar of, he's the bishop of Rome, and he's also, you know, the head of the Catholic Church for the entire world embroiled in this unbelievable, unprecedented war, fighting, uh, you know, the Germans and the Nazis, who were unprecedented in their brutality and their training and their technology and their, you know, the most formidable opponent we ever took on. And so it kind of talks a little bit about what, you know, yeah. what position he was in and what it, what it must have been like to be sitting there in Vatican City with uh, 1,500 SS troops within, you know, a mile of his office. Well, let's listen to another excerpt from Syndrome K, a documentary by Stephen Edwards. 
because the Pope was afraid. Even the priests were afraid. He should not have been afraid. It was the Pope. But fear was something that no one could hide from during this time. Pope Pius was one of the greatest spiritual leaders in the world, but that didn't mean he was immune from politics. He was negotiating with Adolf Hitler, the most feared man in the world. One wrong move could prove to have tremendous life-threatening repercussions. The hospital sits less than 200 meters away from the Jewish ghetto, but their connection had always been closer than their proximity. But that relationship would be tested with the Vatican's silence. They also hired me because uh, Fatebene Fratelli Hospital belonged to the Vatican back then. It was outside Italy. For over 400 years, the hospital has been located on Tiber Island and served as a literal bridge between the great synagogue of Rome and the Vatican on either shore. The rumor spread at Fatebene Fratelli there was a Jewish doctor. The word got out rather quickly within the Jewish community that Borromeo would lend them a hand, and he was a friend. That's another excerpt from Syndrome K, and I really like the way uh, you framed the Pius XII question, because there's been, as you know, enormous debate over his role in trying to help Jews or not help Jews. But from the point of view of the survivors, certainly we can understand why their opinion would not be so positive about him, correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to put ourselves in Pius's shoes for a second. Uh, Remember, the Pope had no army. I mean, imagine him getting a group of Carmelite nuns and giving them a carbine rifle and going up against the SS troops. I mean, it's a joke. You know, and uh, so, you know, and literally, the SS could just walk. I mean, if you've been to Rome, you know, Vatican City is the size of an 18-hole golf course. Right. And Rome is Rome. And, uh, you know, it was occupied by a large number of SS troops who had the ruthless training that, you know, everybody knows about. And this is a small story about what happened. But, you know, um, he had he had to balance a lot of things, you know. And if there's a story, and I don't, don't know the specifics of it, but in the Netherlands, a bunch of priests started to speak up and, and started to really uh, go after Hitler. And they were basically slaughtered. Yeah. So, That's right. you know, he knew what was going to happen if he spoke out. And so... And, and what happened in Italy could not have happened but for his cooperation. There's just no chance. Well, you, no you talk about in the documentary that there was a priest network that was trying to help. Yep. And didn't yep. that include and one very close aide to Pius XII? Well, Monti- are you talking about Montini? Yeah. Yeah. Who, be, so, who is a future uh, pope, Paul VI. Paul VI. And, and interestingly... Montini was friends with Borromeo. They were buddies. Ah. So imagine those two guys with, you know, a fettuccine, a bolognese, and a bottle of Brunello sitting at a cafe. Oh, you're making me hungry, and you're making right? me miss Rome. Come on. All of it, all of it. Steve, yeah. please, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, they did things in a very sort of cooperative way. And, you know including hiding, by the way, there's an interesting side story, which I didn't include in my doc. Rabbi Zoller uh, was the chief rabbi in Rome, uh, very highly respected. And, of course, what the Nazis did when they swept for Jews, they went for the rabbis first. They wanted to kill the, you know, the great minds of, the, of Judaism first because it would demoralize everybody else. Right. That's why they and went for a lot of priests. Exactly. Same same reason. And so, uh, interestingly, the Zoller. Uh, so you know, there's a whole story. Um, the SS um, rounded up about a thousand, a little over a thousand Jews um, within six weeks of 
occupying Rome, and they were all sent to Auschwitz, and like five of them survived. I actually met two of them when I was there. Um, so, you know, the Jews knew, knew what was going on and what was going to go on. And Zoller uh, was um, hidden immediately and hid through the rest of the, the occupation. And he was apparently also friends with Pius XII. They were friendly. And when the war ended, and later into the 40s, he actually converted to Catholicism. Well, I think and we... Uh, you can imagine what that must have been like for oh, Jewish gosh, people yes. when they're, you know... Their their spiritual leader basically. Well, he had seen the best. He had seen the best of the Catholic faith. Yeah. Well, there you go. And his well, life. Let's, uh, Stephen, let's let's go ahead. This next clip is a little longer, so let's go ahead and listen. What are we going to hear? Are we talking about? We're talking about the Vatican, and sort of it gives you a little more background backstory about what was going on, the dynamics, the, the complications, the politics. Uh, you know, just to, it kind of sets you up to what the what it was like to be there at that time. Let's let's listen. At 110 acres and with a population of under 1,000, Vatican City is the smallest sovereign state in the world by area and population, but definitely not by influence. The Holy See of Rome is the jurisdiction of the Pope in world affairs, which became crucial during the war. Especially during the Nazi occupation, the Holy See needed to somehow maintain some level of diplomatic relations with the Nazi occupiers. Just three kilometers away, directly under the shadow of the Vatican and the Pope, nestled on tiny Tiber Island in the heart of Rome, is a hospital run by Catholic friars, the Fata Bene Fratelli Hospital, a name that means do good brothers in Italian. Run by a Catholic doctor named Giovanni Borromeo, and ground zero for one of the Holocaust's most courageous acts. My father received a call from a young prior. This prior from the hospital saw this young man, whose name is Brother Mauricio Bialek. He wanted to transform this institution into a real hospital. He said, so you are a primary chief of a hospital, but you have no hospital. I instead have a hospital, but not chief primary doctor. What happened? Let's take a step back. In 1938, Italy began to enforce the racial laws. Because of that, the Jews were considered a separate race, inferior. there was a young doctor named Vittorio Sacerdoti. He was a doctor at the public hospital in Ancona. It was a period of great frustration. I didn't have my personality anymore. Like all the Jews, we had become third, fourth class, if not worse. We didn't have anything. I went into the unknown. I didn't know anyone. At a certain point, they were forced to fire Vittorio Sacerdoti because he was a Jew. My uncle was a university professor at the School of Medicine, General Pathology, and one of his students was the head physician of the Fate Bene Fratelli Hospital in Rome. Professor Borromeo, Borromeo, a strict Catholic, but uh, anti-fascist. So, he called my father and said, Listen, I want to send him to you, because maybe you can find a position for him. Then the head physician shook my hand, and then turned to the friar. Friar Joseph! A smoke for the doctor. At that moment, I understood that life had changed for me. From being nothing, I had come back to my personality. It was my first meeting with people on an equal level. You know, Stephen Edwards, when I watched this documentary for the first time, that was one of the most powerful 
moments for me hearing right. him say that. And uh, again, the, we're seeing the best of the Catholic faith, that those who will courageously sacrifice or be open to harm for the sake of doing the right thing. And what we're going to do, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to specifically talk about the creation of the fake disease called Syndrome K, which did not avoid investigation several times by Nazis, and which, you again, you talk about that in detail in the documentary. So what is so compelling about your documentary is watching how these doctors, who would have been executed if they had been found out, how they endured these investigations and got away with it. So we'll talk more about that and listen to more audio clips from Syndrome K when we return. But first I want to mention that you can watch Syndrome K on iTunes or or Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, and Vudu. So we'll be back in a moment with Stephen Edwards. back with Stephen Edwards, very well-known, widely praised film composer, but not just film music, a composer of other things, including a requiem for his mother, which was premiered at the Vatican, and about which there is a wonderful documentary. He's with us today because we're discussing his latest documentary, Syndrome K., And we want to talk about, and listen to more clips, we want to talk specifically about the invention of the disease and how they got away with it, Stephen. And, and, you know, the irony of ironies is I made a documentary about a fake disease in the middle of a pandemic, (laughs) a real pandemic, uh, which wasn't, you know, when I found out about it, COVID wasn't on on everybody's mind yet. It can't be, soon thereafter it it was, and when it got released it was. But... um, the invention of the disease was sort of the brainchild of the doctors, and they you know, kind of put their heads together, and they had all these Jews in the hospital, and they didn't know what to do with them. And obviously the SS was very, you know, you know very clever and didn't take ruses lightly. And so, uh, you know, the way they went about it was, you know, they fought, you know, machine guns with stethoscopes and medical charts and trickery and uh, bravery, you know, bravery in the face of, uh, I'm sure, unbelievable consequences if they had found out. They probably would have murdered the entire staff of the hospital. Yeah. But they did create a separate ward for Syndrome K uh, illness, correct? Correct. And There is one picture that survives. Yeah, and what we're talking about, how many Jews are we talking about? that were saved by this? Great question, and the answer is we don't really know. But it's in the hundreds, we know. It's probably in the hundreds, Uh, and we also found out right before we left Rome that there was actually a second hospital doing the same thing. Really? Yeah, so I did not know that. Yeah, so apparently they went to another hospital and and sort of gave them the intel, and... So they said, well, you know, they have syndrome K here. Well, there's other Jews that have it, too, and they're in this That's hospital. wonderful. So, yeah. <laughs> didn't know, yeah. So yeah. you didn't find that until after the documentary was made? Well, we found out about it pretty much right when we were leaving Rome. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't have any survivors or any doctors from there, so we just kind of focused on Fatih Benefit because right. that was the origin. Well, let's Come listen to another audio clip from... Syndrome K. What are we going to hear on this, Stephen? So this is kind of the story about the the backstory of World War II and and what happened in Italy and Badoglio and Mussolini and Eisenhower and that kind of story because there was this whole story about you know the the Allies started in North Africa, took Sicily, and then jumped over and started at the bottom of the boot 
Salerno and moved their way up to Rome, and it was, you know, very brutal war. Lots of, ca- you know, 90,000 Allied casualties. I mean, it was some of the worst fighting in World War II that people don't really know about. Well, let's listen to this clip. Then started the terrible war. May 22nd, 1939. The Germans and Italians created an alliance known as the Steel Pact. July 9th, 1943. Spearheaded by the United States, the Allies began their Italian campaign with the invasion of Sicily. They needed to make their way to Rome. This would prove to be a long, bloody undertaking. They were fighting against one of Germany's most skilled military minds, Albert Kesserling, the commander now charged with defending Italy from the Allies. After the Italians surrendered to the Allies, Hitler sent General Kesselring to occupy Rome, the same general who commanded the capture and destruction of Rotterdam. The fear was the Nazis were going to do the same thing to Rome. They were running and shouting, the Germans are coming, the Germans are coming. With a stronghold on Rome, Hitler's influence permeated throughout the city and eventually into the highest office in the Vatican and Catholic Church, the seat of the Pope, Pope Pius XII. During the fascist period in Rome, the situation was very complicated. Complicated because Pope Pius XII never officially intervened. Yeah, there we are back with the question of the point of view of the survivors, and it's very understandable why they are sort of black and white about Pius XII, whereas there are there are some comp- complications that they would not have known about. Correct. And Correct. also the fact that you know they you were getting help, or they, the Jews were getting help from Montini. Who was the right hand man to Pius the Twelfth and, and the future Pope? Yeah. So the yep. did did you off sort of off camera? Did you have more conversations with them about the Catholic Church? Um, it's a great question. So you know, when I interviewed Ozzini, um, I told you I had a Jewish journalist who knew him, who interviewed him, because she spoke really nice English and perfect Italian, because she's a Roman Jew. And um, so I didn't speak any Italian, so it was really interesting. Kind of At the end of the um, interview, he looked at me. He knew who I was. He knew I was the director. And he started speaking French to me. And I speak really good high school French, you know, really passable high school French. And I was kicking myself because I would have, you know, studied up, watched French TV for weeks before I got to have a private audience with Ozzuccini and prepared questions for him and interviewed him in French because I could have done it one-on-one, you know? Right. But anyway, I actually have a film of me having a brief back and forth with him. And, you know, he really was um, Ozzuccini himself. I asked him about his faith, and he was an Orthodox Catholic. He was, you know, daily mass, confession, you know, he was... He was one of those. And, uh, you know, his whole family, you know, he, he lived in this compound um, above Rome. There was a big monastery next to it. I forget the name, St. Gregory's or something. I forget the name of it. But his entire family lives inside of this compound. His wife, his four kids, and their entire families. It's, it's crazy. It's like, it's like an apartment complex of Ozzuccini's. One at Rome. Um, so that was, you know, and I had a conversation with him about, you know, that. And then the the Roman Jew survivors, you know, have lived their lives uh, freely as, you know, as faithful Jews. Um, and, uh, you know, Borromeo, the same. He was, you know, a lifelong Catholic. Uh, seems like a devout guy. So, you know, I think the point, the walkaway point from all of it is, in, including with Rabbi Zola, the story I told you, you know, he converted to Judaism, which was very controversial, but remember, he had the freedom to do that, and what the Allies were fighting for was the freedom to to worship. <laughs> you don't right. think about it. Because the Nazis were is pretty much as anti-Catholic as you can possibly get. Yes, you know? but their fury against Jews went so much farther. And, uh, sure, of course. What, 
did you have any difficult moments yourself personally in hearing these stories and taking them in from actual, you know, real life human beings who were there? You know, that's a great question. It, to me, you know, the overriding principle of it and why I wanted to make the film was just how it was a story of the best of humanity in the face of the absolute worst of humanity. And I tend to be a glass half full guy. So I liked the optimism and the outcome and the fact that people went out of their way and risked their own necks for people that they didn't know. So, you know, hearing the stories of these people, you know, living in a basement and, and eating cabbage for two months while they were hiding or whatever, uh, you know, in difficult circumstances was, you know, much outshone by the fact that uh, people went to unbelievable lengths to uh, to beat these guys, and they beat them with their cleverness, not with machine guns, you know. So I just tell, loved the story from the first second. Tell our listeners about the SS inspections of the Syndrome K ward. Well, yeah, I mean, the <clears throat> you know, what the, the report we got was that they would go in, and the, what the doctors did is they basically prepared fake medical charts for everybody, and in a lot of cases, fake identities, and uh, taught them to uh, show symptoms. And so the, the Nazis and the SS were just terrified. They didn't want to get sick. And so they stayed out. They stayed away from them. And, uh, you know, they figured out they're just they're going to die anyway. Just let them die in the hospital. So when they came in to inspect, you know, these guys were hacking up blood and, you know, just, you know, looked just like, you know, death warmed over. And, the you know, they were consistent and the ruse really worked. Well, the... Uh the Nazis were fooled, but at one point, didn't they go in and sort of uh, beat up on one of the doctors and throw around his office? Yeah, there, I mean, there are several instances of that where they, you know, they went in, they got suspicious, and, uh, you know, Ozzuccini was was severely beaten. He showed me the scars that he had at 98 years old, and they beat him with uh, bean bags. You know, they, I mean, they, they knew they couldn't kill him because he was, the, the uh, reprisals from the Vatican would have been pretty severe because they were trying to keep good relations with the Vatican. And, you know, remember, Fatih Benefertelli was a Vatican property, even though it was called, you know, extraterritorial. It was outside of the Vatican, but the actual property itself was considered part of Vatican City. They have several basilicas that are also that way. So, um, you know, they had to be careful. Yeah. And... It's amazing, given the level of scrutiny the SS must have gone through, that they survived. Now, the the next clip, I believe, uh, tells us about the beginning of the war. Uh, I think the next clip is talking, where the doctor's actually talking yes, a little bit about what I'm describing. the doctor's describing their situation. Yeah. So let's listen to that. What did my father do? He did something very unusual. He came up with a disease which was totally imaginary. He said that this was a horrible disease, very dangerous, very aggressive, and neurologically degenerative. He named it Syndrome K. And we decided that their ailment was to be called Syndrome K. K stood for Kesseling, the German army's chief for Italy. But it could also stand for Cox disease or Casper disease, that is tumor in German. So we could turn it around like we wanted. Note that both names begin with the first letter K. K was the first letter of Kepler which was the name of the SS colonel of Rome, and Kesserling, the general. This was a way to mess with them, almost a way to humiliate them. This was not a game. Syndrome K was an illness invented by Professore Borromeo that was highly infectious, even though it wasn't real. 
It was to scare and give concern to the Nazi SS because they were very, very afraid of being near anyone with a highly contagious disease. Headache, nausea, vomiting, those were the relevant symptoms. But because he was such a fine doctor, he was able to invent the symptoms and progression of this disease that were very, very credible. Well, did you talk to any of, of your survivors or their relatives about what happened when the Americans got there? Oh, that was a unanimous conversation. They still love, 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 love the Americans. I mean, the ones that got to witness Mark Clark, you know, march through Rome and boot the Nazis out, it is a uh, absolute love fest. Um, I. It was amazing to. It was actually made me really proud to listen when you know Americans get slammed so much. But this was an absolute. Um, you know, you guys saved us. Thank you so much. We're so grateful. And remember, you know that Allied, uh, the, the Allied rush from Salerno, well, from North Africa to Sicily to Salerno to Rome, was you know a lot of different countries participated in that. U.S. and Britain, Canada, Poland. There were troops from all over the place. So, um, yeah, that, that was a really interesting thing to hear, uh, just how appreciative they were. And the uh, is there has there been any attempt to bring all these folks together for any kind of reunion over the years? I think they've done a couple things. There's uh, Yad Vashem, which is a, um, an organization based in Israel that honors uh, survivors have done a couple things. I saw a couple photos from Fatih Ben Fratelli. They have a couple plaques at Fatih Ben Fratelli where they've honored people and had some ceremonies. And interestingly, they just now they con- they contacted me. There's another organization that is on that honors Jews that saved other Jews that weren't parts of their family. So now Dr. Mm-hmm. Sakadoti is going to be honored uh, next year, and I might actually fly over there. We're going to screen the film and do a little ceremony. He had no kids, never married. I think there's some relatives spread around uh, different parts of Italy. Um, you know, some cousins, I guess, uh, other sacerdotes. And uh, but it should be really interesting to go hang out with them for a couple of days. Well, what's in our final clip? The audio clip from Syndrome K. So this is uh, it's a little more about Pius XII, a little more history, a little more background about him. And, uh, you know, we don't want to give away the whole thing. We don't want to spoil the the experience for your listeners when they go watch the movie. So we're just giving a little more story about what happened, you know, what the climate was like. That's the the last clip. Let's give it a listen. We know about the Pius XII controversy. In appearance, he was pro-German both because uh, of his origin from the time uh, he was uh, in Germany as Apostolic Nunzio. And because here in Rome, the chief of his home service was a German nun. And also because of his family upbringing. He came from a Roman nobility, which was usually rather anti-Semitic, right? So, on that part, uh, he undoubtedly didn't love us much. But he was also a pope, a political pope. He considered many aspects. First of all, he had to save Rome, and he had to save himself too, I think. The Vatican did not remain silent. This friendship between my father and the Secretary of the State, Giovanni Battista Montini, was crucial in that he was willing to be part of this mission in order to help the Jews to freedom. And in fact, the clergy helped uh, the Jews in a way we can't even imagine, in a very open way. And many Jews were saved by priests and by convents. And he could not have accomplished any of that if it were not for the hand of the Vatican. I mean, think about it. Where could he have put all those Jews? We're talking about more than 100 Jews saved. 
after the German occupation of Rome, I took the last name Salviucci. There was a reward, you know. I was worth between 5,000 and 10,000 lire back then. Rooms got full, supplies ran low. The SS started to have their suspicions. Despite the doctors working under the constant fear of exposure, they had to be brave to prevent another life from being taken. The Nazi SS, the special forces, the most highly specialized, most eccentric unit of the special forces, began to suspect that there was something curious going on at the hospital. Yeah, there certainly was something curious going on. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, being a friend of yours for such a long time and loving your music and uh, being part of one of your ecclesial pieces, the Ave Maria Mass, yeah. uh, I was listening to the music rather closely all through the documentary. And I think you were really holding yourself back. You didn't want the music to in any way be uh, compete with the emotions on screen. But at the very end, you sort of blossomed into what I would call a kind of concerto grosso of the various themes in the movie, which is quite beautiful. Thank you. Well, it's funny, you know, I said, you know, to myself, okay, well, am I going to score this thing? And then what if the music stinks? Like, who's going to throw it out? Because I'm also the director. <laughs> and so I, I really depended on my picture editor, Greg Hunter, to, you know, I said, look, Greg, I'm going to write, I'm going to start feeding you cues from when we start cutting this thing together. And he goes, if you think something's terrible, you need to tell me because, I don't have any perspective. I can see trees, but I can't see the forest. So you have to like you have to pat me down if something's not not happy. And he was great about it. And he mostly gave me notes about you know busyness or transitions or you know all this all this. It just worked out really well. And it's funny you know talk about the Ave Maria Mass. I actually got to sneak in the Agnus Dei from the Ave Maria Mass into the score of this movie, which is pretty neat. And the other neat thing was I got to use orchestras from all over the world. So there's orchestras from Rome, Moscow, London, Belgrade, Prague, and Hollywood playing. Now, you did this on purpose? Sports. Yeah. I just figured it's a World War II film, so I wanted a world orchestra. And, right. Uh, I gave every. I kind of doled out different cues to different groups. And... Uh, it was just that, you know, I knew, because I had control, I would probably never get asked to do that again, because every time I do a film, I'm always working with the same group because of time and budget and stuff like that. But in this case, I said, oh, let's just try it. Let's just do it. It's just unique. Well, did you consciously try to avoid overwhelming these scenes with with your music? Definitely. Because the film is so talky. There's so much information being imparted, and, you know, there's subtitles in some of the versions. So, I, you know, I had, to, I had to, you know, just sort of default to less busy and, you know, not trying to call attention to it. <clears throat> but the score is really critical. The score is almost wall-to-wall. But I didn't want it calling attention to itself because it's the story. I'm trying to support the story. You know, John Williams says, you know, uh, music will survive without movies, but movies wouldn't survive without music. Oh, that's so true. Isn't that great? That is so true. You know, even the silent movies, as you well know, had music being played. Yeah. Whether it was yeah. piano, organ, or sometimes full orchestra. Yep. Not silent at all. Uh, nope. Now, the how has the reception of Syndrome K been? And has it been shown in Italy? It has. Uh, I think it's playing on uh, Discovery Networks there. So it's it's kind of all over the world. It's interesting, you know, I've seen, I haven't seen a whole lot of, um, you know, feedback, but interestingly, the German network that bought the film accidentally um, released the YouTube clip, the YouTube version of the movie in Germany worldwide for like a day. Yeah. And I just happened to see the YouTube in my in United States YouTube when I went to it and go and you know did a search and in literally one day there were three hundred thousand views. Really? Yeah, I was shocked. I took a screenshot of it. 
Well, that so, that um, tells you a lot about uh, yeah the in, the inherent and intrinsic interest in it for sure. You know, and it's one of these World War II secret stories. You know, um, I've told the story to so many people. We've played a lot of Jewish film festivals in the states. We played uh, Heartland Film Festival in Indianapolis, which is a pretty big one. That was our world premiere right before the pandemic. And you know, I tell people the story a lot, and they're like, "Wow, that's an amazing story. I've never heard of it." And then. Once in a while, somebody say, oh, yeah, I've heard of it. And I'm thinking, either you are a Ph.D. in Italian history or you're just lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it really is a secret story. You know, it's one of those that people just don't know. And it's people are fascinated endlessly by these secret World War II stories. We have about a minute left, and there's going to be a film of this. Tell us about where the plans are for that. Yes. So we have a, a feature film script based on the documentary that I developed that uh, was written by Gregory Ballard, who was also the writer on the doc. And it now is in the hands of an Italian director and an Italian screenwriter. And literally, right before I got on the phone with you, we had an hour-long Zoom with them, and they're based both in Rome. And so we're trying to get them to say yes to make the film over there. And we're probably going to make it in Italian. Um, Why is that? Steve, seems to me uh, that would limit your audience. Well, not anymore so much, because the way streamers are now subtitles have become so much more accepted than they were even five years ago that streamers you know it's probably going to end up on a streamer on either um, amazon or netflix but the streamers don't turn away from content that's got subtitles like they used to that is true so um and it's you know think about it like they're speaking english in schindler's list well nobody spoke english in that when it really happened no so it is a little bit of a cinematic you know it's it's to get to you, the audience. You think there's you think there's more desire in the Italian public to see this than say here? Uh that's a really good question. I think people are fascinated by secret World War Two stories, no matter where they're based. You know, there's a huge audience for it in the states, and I think all of Europe. I mean, think about it. Germany was really interested, and in, you know, they're the guilty party. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I want to. Uh, uh, they, they found it interesting. Uh, well, we wish you good luck with that. And I want to repeat that Syndrome K can be rented on Apple or iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, and Vudu. Stephen Edwards, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on Church and Culture. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. And I'm sure you'll be back. You're up to so much, and it's all so good. So thank you again. And to all you who are listening, there'll be a brief pause. We'll have another wonderful guest.